The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome back. So we're moving, and I know it pushes some of your buttons, but to this sort of map, 16 steps. But just keeping it simple, it's because the map, like this is the nice thing, you don't have to think about it in 16, you can think about it in four. It's like four kinds of healing, mental healing, right? First is the mind is healing its relationship with the body, first set of four instructions. That's really the flavor. Once we have some competence with the first four instructions, and you can get your own list if you want. So uh, in the weekly email where it announces these weekly practice groups, there's a link there, and there's lots of resources around mindfulness of breathing. The first one is just a simple cheat sheet with the 16 steps if you want to print it up for yourself. If you don't have a printer at home, I have a few copies in the office. You can come in after the program. I'll get you a copy. Um, But the first four are really about how do we train the mind, which is always in relationship with the body. But often our relationship is one of being oblivious. Just like it is we can have a relationship with our cat that's one of being oblivious, or a partner, or the world we live in. Right where we're in the world, it just so happens that by the way I'm relating to the world as if it isn't there or doesn't matter. Right, that's a large part of how we manage our existence because there's this huge complexity of our relationships, even simple ones like, or not simple but immediate ones like our family, can be overwhelming. So we use that it's not there, like that denial or that distraction. And then certainly with the wider issues in the world, it's like, oh, it's too complex. So, so much of our practice is learning how to handle complexity and the uh, exposure, the vulnerability of that complexity and messiness and woundedness and brokenness that is our lives and our world, right? So it's like, what are we going to do? Run from it? Well, you can try that. You can try denial, but it turns out to be a lot more stressful, right? And neurotic, counterproductive, than learning that actually the heart has the capacity, it takes some training, but the heart has the capacity to embrace, to open to complexity, to brokenness, to woundedness, to injustice, right? And to inhabit that space. doesn't mean instantly everything's fine. It just means we're finally meeting our life. And our life, whatever it means to be me or means to be you, it involves this interrelatedness with everything else. A lot of times people imagine that meditation practice is like, Get me out of here. It's too complex. It's too, you know, unworkable. Let me get to my sweet spot. Because there is some of that in meditation practice where the mind does retreat. But that's not really the general thrust. But it is good to take it in stages. So the first stage is not like, 
opening up to injustice in the world. We're just opening up to the mind relating to the body. But the body is a microcosm of the world. All the injustice, all the oppressive forces that exist in our world exist in how the mind relates to the body. Right? Dominance exists in how the mind relates to the body. You know? Have you noticed that your mind has that relationship to some bodily experience like this is not okay. You can't be this way, you know. Being demanding in some ways. This is very common. Or, you know, what's that phrase the mobsters say to the person that has betrayed them, you know, you you know, I don't see you anymore or you're you know, anyway, you don't exist for me anymore, right? Right? And we do that with our body. You know, it's like forget it. You're not gonna behave. I want no part of you. (laughs) So a lot of what we're doing in the beginning, it's not like a healing technique where we're helping the body be different than it is. We're helping the mind meet the body, have an intimate, loving, tender, fearless relationship with the body as it actually is. And it just so turns out that the secondary effect is it's very healing for the body for the mind to be relating to the body this way. So it actually helps the body, right? The body has, you know, all of these tendencies to heal, woven in to the sort of structure of the body, the genetic code of the body. But the mind is a, can be an oppressive force that freezes or li- limits the body's ability to take care of itself. So Secondarily, this is really good work for the body, healing work for the body, helping the mind relate in a beautiful way to the body. So first, we put down the world by just being with the physicality of breathing in. Just to get in the vicinity of taking care of this relationship, we have to drop the mental obsessions. And the way we drop them is we take up a training. Just be aware of breathing in, the touching, the rising of the belly, something simple, some physical you know, movement that's related to the breathing process. Whatever you feel, obviously, as you breathe in, let that be what the mind keeps in mind, pays attention to as you breathe out. And it, like I said, two things you want to keep in mind, that joyful interest and being relaxed. That's all you need to keep in mind. The joyful interest means there is a training, like, and the training I can't be forced. <coughs> I don't know if I read this a while back, but this is from uh, Tanisaru Bhikkhu, this Western American Buddhist monk, quite well-known scholar and meditation teacher. And he leads um, a monastery outside of San Diego, really nice place. But he gives the example of, you know, if you try to you know, lock a child in a room, the child's going to really complain. But if you give the child some interesting things to play with, they might be okay. So our mind, the paying attention mind, right? It's used to doing whatever it wants, paying attention to whatever it wants. So instead of saying, no, you know, that's that dominance, that power play. No, you're going to pay attention to the in-breath. You're going to pay attention to the out-breath. Well, the mind's going to react to that that sort of dominance, right? So you need to invite, like, you might like 
to notice this. Like bringing that joyful interest, it actually is quite sweet. And this is this essential lesson we have to learn, that what makes something pleasant has more to do with how we're paying attention than the object itself. Mowing the lawn can be very pleasant if the way the mind is showing up or mowing the lawn can be quite oppressive. Right? It really matters how we're doing these tasks in life. And it's just interesting, like children, oh, let me mow, you know? <laughs> What's the difference? They're interested. They have a joyful interest. It's an enlivening process for them. But is it the mowing? No. It's, that the, it's the way the mind is. The mind is interested. It's enlivened by the activity. When we brush our teeth, when we wash the dishes, when you hear Mark talk, what is it about the activity that blocks joy, that sort of freezes out joy from the heart? Like what's actually in the way of joy? And this is essential, like if we're going to do this, I mean, I'm not even talking about Buddhist practice. If we're going to undertake an actual spiritual practice, it has to have the flavor, the thread of joy all the way through it. There's no, I think, you know, there's no authentic spiritual awakening, liberating practice that doesn't feel good every step of the way. Now, I'm not saying that it isn't, there aren't dark nights of the soul or difficult stuff we move through. Clearly there is. But what allows us to move through those difficult times? There's some thread of release, some flavor of release that guides us along the way. That's how we know we're going towards release instead of going to hell, getting tighter, becoming more negative. Right, more fear-based, more self-centered. It's that flavor we're following. Otherwise, we're dependent on someone else telling us whether we're going in the right direction or not. Right? But see, we, we really value, we need the instructions from our so-called spiritual elders, but they can't really tell us what to do. They can tell us the map as that, you know, they had their own sort of navigation and they do their best to articulate it. And then that gives us some sense of road, you know, road signs along the way, what to pay attention to, when to go left, when to go right. But we have to actually walk it or do it, navigate it. Doesn't matter that the Buddha or whoever did their work, we have to find our way. And the way we find our way is this inner taste of joy or release or freedom or peace but it can't be idealistic it has to be actual otherwise we get down roads that we thought was leading to peace and we end up betrayed because we were just on some idealistic trip following our idea of what would work but not actually what was leading to release I mean we know when we're caught up in self-centered drama, it feels a certain way. You know, if we're not so intoxicated with the thought, what someone did to me, what I'm going to do to somebody, whatever the drama's about, and we just take a moment to be aware of what it feels like, this body and mind, we'll say, okay, 
This is what it feels like. Clearly, this is not the way. This is not the direction I'm interested. I mean, do we need to be trained like the difference between being gripped and being released just on that gross level of physical tension? No. It's instinctual, spiritually instinctual. The heart knows that release feels right in the deepest sense, and being bound up feels not right. And that's what we mean when we talk and you hear us, because it can sound idealistic and uh, dualistic when we talk about skillful versus unskillful, wholesome versus unwholesome. But we're really talking about this direct, immediate, let's say, personal experience of I'm showing up in my life in this way, relating in this way, understanding in this way, and the net result is being contracted, relatively speaking, or released, relatively speaking, in this way. This is when I'm relating, when I'm showing up to the moment in this way, this is the flavor of that. Like when you think about moments of giving, doing something generous, showing up for a family member when you'd rather be doing something else, whatever that might be, you can notice the taste, like I'm doing it, but there's some resentment. right? Like, okay, so this is the fruit of how I've been relating, how I'm doing this thing. Is that the kind of fruit I'm interested in? No. Well, what's another way of relating, another way of being, another way of doing this moment where I get a different fruit, a fruit that I trust, <clears throat> a fruit that has a flavor of release, <clears throat> of opening, of heart opening, right? We know the difference between a closed heart and an open heart, a tense body and a released body, an agitated, fragmented mind, a unified, whole, open mind. We know the differences. But are we sort of using them to track and to kind of guide us through our life? And we definitely want this with the practice. So that's why like, we get the map from our teachers and they say, okay, here's a little you know, secret teaching as you do these initial instructions and then all the way through. It's never involved, it never needs to involve tension, right? So if you're tight, it's not the way, right? It always requires joyful interest. If you're not interested, if you're bored, you can't do the practice. If you somehow, if, if, if what's operating in our mind is some thought that this moment, which is my life, isn't relevant, so I don't need to be awake, right? That's not going to help. So we can check that out and see if those are two good road signs that we can keep working with. Relaxation helps. Joyful interest helps. Joyful, you could say like, because uh, joy can be a sort of a provocative word. It can trigger a sense of, oh, poor me, like, I don't know joy. And I resent all of you who know joy. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's that can come up. I know that comes up for me. It's like, we know we're in a kind of a negative space when happy people irritate us. <laughs> like, what right do you have to be happy? 
So if you don't like the word joy, use a different word for <clears throat> interest. But like that, like what the example I give sometimes, many of you have heard me, when we're experiencing, seeing, or hearing a wild animal that we haven't seen very often, there's sort of a natural joyful interest. Oh, what's that? Whoa, haven't seen that before. I was out at Prairie Farm Common Grounds Retreat property, um, 80 miles east of here, north of Menominee, beautiful place we've been developing now, doing a retreat these last couple of weeks. And um, and I saw just like, a, you know, I, I sit, and there's a big window where I sit, and we have a tiny house, a little teacher cabin out there. And... Uh, See sometimes, and then there were like the boring birds, <laughs> and the somewhat interesting birds like blue jays, and then the very interesting birds, right? Like pileated woodpeckers, right? Those are get your attention, right? They're bigger, they look prehistoric, they've got an interesting call, right? And you just to sort of notice, like, but why can't we have? Why can't the mind have the same interest all the way through? Now, sometimes the interest is tainted by greed. Oh, don't fly away. I want to, you know, I really want to see you operate. So that's why we have the relaxation. Like, can we have the interest, the joyful interest, and the relaxation, even when it's just a common sparrow or whatever it might be, some bird that's an invasive species and shouldn't even be there, you know? Um, so we do that, and we. this is why the first two instructions are so useful, is it really trains us what it means to be relaxed as opposed to controlling, and what it, it trains us to be interested. Because if we can be interested in something as ordinary as breathing in and breathing out, just the touching here or the rising and falling of the abdominal wall, then we can be interested in almost anything, because these are pretty ordinary experiences. And it's really, there's nothing in the way of being joyfully interested and relaxed. Like right now, we can be relating all the time. And it's a real gift to the folks who are around. Even when we're dealing with really intense issues at home, we can bring a really sense of wonder. Like if you don't want joyful interest, you could say like that, just that sense of, oh, wow, this is happening now. This is how it is. Isn't it? I, I mean, more and more, and it's saving me really with politics. I'm relating to the news with, wow, <laughs> like a real sense of awe. This is amazing. <laughs> it is mind blowing, <laughs> and it's really interesting how this natural wild phenomena we call our political scene is going to play itself out, isn't it? Isn't it truly amazing? And it will be interesting how it plays out. And it is interesting, like, what should we do about this? You know? And I, I have this sort of amazing sense of humility, like, I don't know. I don't know. Should I get on the street? You know? Should we all get on the street? Or should we do this? Or should we do that? I don't know. I'm open. I'm listening. I'm feeling. And I have a sense of wonder about the whole thing. Wow. Wow. And the thing that I've really been using, I mean, really since a lot of us started growing up around 9-11, it's just this sort of 
unconscious idealism where we thought we knew, you know, and all of a sudden we realize we don't know. You know, this like around progress, ideas of progress. So I had to sort of, uh, for certain folks in the room, myself included, you know, it just got imprinted in our mind. Oh, yeah, we're moving in the right direction. Well, maybe, maybe not. And maybe it kind of goes like this, or maybe it went like this, and then it's going to go like this. But the point for me, as in, a, in terms of awakening, is I now know better that I don't know. And I'm learning to be comfortable knowing that I don't know. And still participate. Like, just because I don't know doesn't mean we give up. It just means when we show up, we're showing up in a more authentic way because we know that we don't know. And we're not pretending to be arrogantly sure. And a lot of times, I said, like I said, we think because we don't know, we're going to be paralyzed. But it might be just the opposite. We actually have to check this out. We might feel more um, enlivened and creative knowing that we don't know. We might try things we wouldn't otherwise try, like having conversations, like listening, like just trying things out. Well, let's do this and see what happens. Push here, step back here, listen, speak up, and see what happens. But just going back to the 16 steps, <laughs> really work with those two. Now, I'm just going to go, before opening it up for discussion, I'll go through the first 12 that we've been working with. But really think about relaxation and joyful or enlivened interest through all of these first 12 objects. So the first object is just the gross in and out breath. Right, how the breath is when our mind is in an ordinary state of consciousness. Relatively rough, relatively ordinary breathing. As we settle in, step two, we're noticing the in and out breath when it's more refined. Because there's been more continuity, less distractedness, more continuity of present moment awareness, because we're using this exclusive meditation object, feeling the breath as it comes in feeling the sensations of the breath as it goes out. Things settle down. And the breath can get quite refined. And some of you have experienced it. It's almost like it's not there. It's so subtle. Just the ordinary in and out. Because the body generally, and the breath specifically, reflects the way the mind is. So as the mind settles, the breath, and generally the bodily functions settle down too. And then the Buddha invites us to open up, to have a more inclusive awareness of the whole body. Breathing in, experiencing the whole body. And yourself, while breathing out, experience, be aware of the whole body. Yes to the body. So the healing begins. Not no to the body. Not yes to you, but no to you. But no, yes to the whole body, the whole package. And that's healing. So then the fourth instruction is experiencing the calm that comes because the mind is willing to say yes to the body. Then there's a sense of calm in the relationship of mind and body. And experiencing that calm, subtle initially, faint initially, but it begins to spread and deepen as we keep calm in mind. So that's the fourth object. So you might say, oh yeah, I'm being aware of the in and out breath, but actually breathing in and out is more in the periphery and the mind's interest in calm is in the forefront of attention. 
So we're always bringing different objects into the forefront. But the breathing always stays there in the periphery. We're not forgetting the in and out breathing, but there's some particular thing we're interested in, the calm for step four. When there's enough of that healing, the mind is okay with the body, is in this harmonious relationship with the body, then that the mind begins to generalize that as maybe I can trust everything. So it just lets life move. The life, what is life? The activity of the body and mind. It allows it to move without resistance, a little bit. And that's called joy. Joy is unrestricted movement. Isn't that right? I mean, when you, I mean, as words go, to talk about the experience of feeling joy, it's when there's a life, which is just activity of the mind and body, without restriction. We feel joyful. So joy happens whenever the mind begins to drop its resistance to life. And that's experienced subjectively as a kind of a lightness, a buoyancy, a releasing, right? a flow, a vibration even, like energies moving without it feeling oppressed or restricted. The energy of life, the energy of the mind and body. Wherever you feel that, however you feel it, start where you feel it. So let that feeling of buoyancy, of lightness, of movement, of flow come into the forefront as you breathe in and stay in the forefront as you breathe out, one half breath at a time. Can you keep this relatively subtle experience of the mind we're calling joy, the the non-restrictedness, right? the non-contractedness, the non-fear, can we keep that in mind? The absence of restriction, flow, lightness, as you breathe in, as you breathe out. And then the more that the mind is paying attention to things not being restricted, there's sort of a deeper maturing of happiness, which is, I trust life even more. I trust the moment enough to be content with the conditions as they are. So basically, the mind begins to drop the idea that I'll be happy when. Now it's like, no, no, I'm going to be happy now. That this moment's okay enough to be happy, to be content, to ease, to release and to ease. And that's just a natural maturing of noticing joy, noticing ease. And then from that place of contentment in some sense of ease, the Buddha invites us to notice, to bring into the forefront mental activity. But now, because there is that contentment and ease, the way we notice mental activity, feeling, perception, thought, intention, you know, all the different stuff that's always moving in the heart, body, mind, as what we call mental activity, that it's okay. Because I already feel okay, so I don't have to neurotically tell myself what thoughts I should be thinking or shouldn't be thinking or feeling feelings I should or shouldn't have, intentions I should or shouldn't have, memories I should or shouldn't have. I can just let mental activity be. And then that leads to the quieting of the mind, which is the eighth instruction. Notice that the eighth instruction isn't to quiet the thinking mind. It's to notice the quieting of mental activity. Because we have this dispassionate relationship to mental activity, 
mental activity quiets down. Mental activity increases when we have a problem with our thought. We have a thought, didn't land so well. Oh yeah, I got to do that. And then we have another thought. So when we have a disturbing thought, that leads to more thoughts. When we have thoughts that aren't disturbing, that have permission to be there, we're okay with whatever they are. Those thoughts don't trigger other thoughts. So that's why we get to notice the quieting of mental activity. Breathing in, experiencing the quieting of mental formations, mental activity. Breathing out, experiencing the quieting, the calming of mental activity. So you see there's a parallel with the second four, with the first four. The first four is that healing of mind and body, how the mind knows the body. Now it's how the mind knows mental activity and a real healing with how the mind relates to mental activity. Here it's how the mind relates to the body. Here we're healing how the mind relates to mental activity. And with the third set of four, we're healing how the mind uh, heals and relates to the space of the mind itself, to the knowing mind itself. From relatively gross to relatively subtle, we're healing the mind relating to the body, the mind relating to mental activity, the mind relating to the space of the mind itself, not the activity. So the more subtle aspect of the mind. You could say, like I said in the instructions, the space of the present moment, which is the space of the mind. Because this that we're experiencing, where is it happening? We're here. Well, when I say here, what do I mean? It's not out there, the here. The here that we mean when we say, no, it's right here, we're really pointing to the space of knowing. Like when something intense or beautiful or subtle is happening, it's happening here. Not what's happening, but that it's happening here. That's the space of the heart, space of the mind, space of the present moment. It's subtle. But the mind, when it's not pulled by these more gross things, because they're pretty settled, then the mind is capable of being interested in something this subtle. As you breathe in, as you breathe out. The more you're able to notice the space of the mind, the more you notice it's beautiful. Where have you been? It's like a profound spiritual homecoming, the space of the heart, the space of the mind, because it's mostly missed by human beings because we're just working at survival and working at belonging and working at not being taken advantage of in our lives. And all that external activity makes the subtle aspect of what who we are just not available. But now we have the privilege to have this time and to take up this training and to realize, to wake up to this more subtle aspect of the heart. Oh, So we notice the space of the heart, we appreciate it, we gladden it, we recognize it as being deeply spiritually beautiful. That quiets it down. That allows it to fully bloom, to fully be realized until there's a moment where the mind is seen without any distortion, any selfing. So the mind even abandons the idea, this is my mind. Because that's in the way of just letting the beauty, the peacefulness of the inner mind, heart, whatever you want to call it, 
express itself. It doesn't need the mind to name it, to define it, to claim it. So at some point, that more subtle activity of claiming it just stops. And then the mind realizes the mind when there isn't any of that distorting, selfing activity. And that's the 12th step. Still four more. And then the last four, just as a sort of a looking ahead, it's really the maturing of that insight that happens at step 12. Like when the mind uh, releases selfing, notices the mind empty of selfing, self-centered drama, right? No sense of separation. Then it gets really interested in like integrating that insight so that it becomes the operating, the way the mind operates in the world. And that's really what we're doing with uh, steps uh, 13 through 16 is we're allowing for that integration of the mind, what the mind understands when it sees the mind without selfing in it. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.